Welcome to the Back Pain Podcast with Rob and Dave, the only show geared specifically to help educate you about your back pain. We talk to the experts to bust the myths, break down the science, and give you all the top tips for living pain-free. So if you're driving to work, tidy in the house, or even laid up at home in pain, we have something for everyone. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. This week, the Back Pain Podcast is taking a slightly different turn. We're discussing something away from back pain. Now, after a poll in our Facebook group questioning what other injuries do people suffer from that you'd like us to chat about, plantar fascia came up top, or plantar fasciitis, I should say, came up top. So we reached out to Ben Boschel, a podiatrist with a specialist interest in plantar fasciitis, who also goes by the handle The Heel Pain Expert. Now, this hugely common condition can be so debilitating, and until I started researching more for this episode, I actually had no idea of the impact that it can have on people's lives. Ben covers today exactly what plantar fasciitis is and how it starts, and then we chat through the whole range of treatments from what you can do for it at home right up to the surgical options, which thankfully are very rarely needed. We also bust some myths about plantar fasciitis. Will it actually get better? Should I be using ice? Will orthotics help? And many, many more. So if you are suffering or know someone who is suffering, or if you treat people with plantar fasciitis and want to know a bit more about it, then this episode is for you. Overall, a fascinating episode and everyone can learn a lot from it. And if you'd like to know more about Ben or visit him for for some help, you can find his details in the show notes below. In other news, have you seen our brand new website, thebackpainpodcast.com, where you can find everything about the show, including blog posts, previous episodes, and our very special feature, the Back Pain Approved Podcast Provider Map. There's a lot of P's in that. This means that if you are suffering with pain and want to find someone to help, be that a surgeon, a physiotherapist, a doctor, a chiropractor, an osteopath, you can simply pop in your address and find someone tried and trusted who's local to you. Everyone on this list has been vetted and approved and have our seal of approval to ensure that you will have the best care possible. But that's enough from me. I'll leave you to sit back and enjoy Ben Boschel on plantar fasciitis. So Ben, what is plantar fasciitis? Well, plantar fasciitis is a very common overuse injury that affects the bottom of the heel. And um, it's so common, it actually affects up to 10% of of the population. That many? That's quite a a significant amount of people then, 10%. That's huge. (laughs) I didn't realise it was that high. No, neither did I until I um, came across it in the literature um, where it's often cited in multiple uh, different articles. Yeah, Yeah. way higher than I thought. So it's got lots of different different names. You know, I've heard it called, you know, kind of chronic plantar heel pain, policeman's heel, plantar fasciopathy, plantar fasciitis. Is there a name that's generally more accepted or one that's modern, one that's old? Kind of how's it changed? Yeah, so, so the traditional term has uh, for a long time has been plantar fasciitis. So that's by far the most commonly used um, by professionals and patients. Uh, over the years, our understanding of the uh, the pathophysiology, which is the technical aspect of the disease, has changed and evolved. So um, there is, uh, amongst the professional world, uh, a more of an up-to-date term, which we call plantar fasciopathy. But in truth, most people uh, still don't use that term, um, including myself personally. I use plantar fasciitis because most patients are familiar with it and I don't like to confuse my patients. So I think plantar fasciitis is by far the most accepted term. Other uh, terms you mentioned there, such as policeman's heel, um, there's even there's 
there's a little bit of disagreement on where those terms actually come from. Is that referring to plantar fasciitis or is that referring to bursitis, which is an entirely different condition? And people will use that term policeman's heel when they mean both of those two different conditions. There's a lot of inconsistencies when using those other lesser used terms. Uh, good. So so we'll, we'll, we'll stick to plantar fasciitis just to kind of cover all bases. And we know we're all, all, on, all on the right place there. So... What actually is it? You know, we know, I don't know whether it's slightly easier for your list, for our listeners to go over a little bit, maybe some basic anatomy, kind mm. of when we're talking about the plantar fascia, yep. uh, you know, what are we talking about here? So on the, the, the bottom of the heel, there's a thick band of connective tissue uh, called the plantar fascia. And this attaches to uh, the main underside of the heel bone. Uh, the fascia then runs along the sole of the foot and then it divides and, and it connects into all of the, uh, all of our toes. Um, the plantar fascia's job is to support the arch of your foot. And uh, for whatever reason, and there's many different reasons, the plantar fascia can become overworked. And then that's when we, we, we use the term strained. And what, what's believed to be happening is that within the fascia itself, there is micro trauma. So there's micro little tears within the fascia tissue. And once that becomes substantial enough, uh, patients will start to develop symptoms, uh, the main one being pain. So you mentioned the word tear there. You know, that's got a, a bit of a, a negative connotation, if you see what I mean. This is very different to like a muscle tear where we've had an acute trauma to it and it's actually ripped. You know, is that when you say micro tear, is that slightly different? Yeah, no, I think it's a good good point that out. So um, something like a muscular tear, which, um, you know, could happen whilst running, that's, you know, that's a, a large tear, what we call a macro tear. So it's, it's, it's a proper tear, if you like. Um, micro tear, and we were talking about the very, very tiny cells within the plantar fascia. So micro tearing is, uh, you know, it's very common and it doesn't necessarily mean you've got a severe injury by any means. And then so that word, you know, fasciitis and that itis on the end generally in in rest of the body refers to inflammation we think red and hot and itis Mm. and infection and those type of things is this does it get him does it get inflamed does it go red hot you know where does that come from yeah so in the very early stages of of the condition so when patients first develop plant fasciitis there is often an inflammatory response that happens so um, patients will feel that the heel is a bit warm or a bit hot uh, a little bit red and a little bit swollen, which are some of the key characteristics of, of inflammation. Um, and that's why the term itis um, is attached onto the word plantar fascia to make, make the word plantar fasciitis. Um, not to be too technical, but as our understanding uh, within research has evolved with plantar fasciitis, we now understand that the inflammatory process is it's there, but it's minor and it's not as... Uh, not as important or as significant as it, as it was previously deemed to be. And that's the, why, you know, in terms of as, as clinicians, that medical terminology has changed from plantar fasciitis to kind of plantar fasciopathy in Correct. terms of the, the, the actual nomenclature of it. Okay. Correct. Yeah. Oh, fascinating. And then, so why does it occur? You know, why do these micro traumas occur? Is this from running? Is it from stretching? Is it from weakness? Is it from tightness? And I'm sure that's a, a massive question in itself. But, you know, as, as an overview, why does this happen to some people? Yeah, that's a really, really big question. My my thoughts are that it's it's multifactorial, which means there are a number of different reasons why somebody might develop plantar fasciitis. And in reality, it's probably a combination of things that are happening at the same time that then just tip the scales, uh, meaning that you then sustain an injury. 
Uh, I think some of the most common causes are sudden changes in activity levels. And this is something I've, I've noticed um, since the coronavirus pen- pandemic, where a lot of us have been in lockdown. So we've been at home and then uh, as to try and vent some of that frustration, some people have developed new hobbies, uh, walking and running being key new hobbies. And people that have started to do these activities weren't necessarily used to doing this pre-coronavirus. So it's very much a new activity for them. And what that's resulted in is that their overall average activity levels, whether that be step count or mileage per week, has jumped up substantially. And the plant fascia being a key structure on the bottom of the foot, it's it's a very important weight-bearing structure. So it's going to be one of the, the tissues most at risk of developing a problem. So I think changing activity levels is is a key uh, reason for getting the condition. Uh, it doesn't always have to be related to a change in activity levels. There are some established risk factors. So uh, what we mean by that is there are certain things uh, that we know contribute to the, the likelihood of getting plantar fasciitis. Uh, being overweight is one of them. Um, feet which roll in too much, and there's a technical term we use for that called pronation. So there is a link between increased foot pronation and plantar fasciitis. And perhaps what the other most significant one, in my opinion, is uh, tight calf muscles. Okay, so these people are sat at home and they've then gone, oh, I'm going to take up running. And they haven't necessarily run that far before. It hasn't been their key hobby. And then I say running, that could be walking, that could be jogging, whatever it might be. And they suddenly go from doing 5,000 steps a day to 25,000 with a 5K run, you know, that type of sudden increase. So is it then that, that plantar fascia, that's that fascia underneath, does it not basically heal enough and you're basically doing too much so then you overload it? Is that kind of a, a good description of it? You know, you overload that fascia, it doesn't heal in time and then we end up in this with this pain. Absolutely. I think that's a really good way to describe it. So the plantar fascia's job, as I said, is to support the arch of your foot. Uh, so when we stand and when we walk, the plantar fascia will be loaded and unloaded as we transverse from one, as we take a step, basically, so go from one foot to the other. And it's quite a robust piece of tissue. So it's designed for that. But if you increase your activity levels too much, uh, the body doesn't have a chance to repair. And repair process is very important. This isn't unique to plantar fasciitis. This is you know, relevant to most uh, you know, musculoskeletal overuse injuries we see and treat. Yeah. yeah, and we've had that before, whether that's back pain or whether it's knee pain. You know, tendons, muscles, joints have to adapt to the load that you put them through. And if they can't adapt fast enough, we generally end up with with an injury, which is why no one goes out tomorrow and starts a marathon program by running a marathon. They start by doing couch to 5K and then kind of build it, building up that way. So what are the kind of the hallmarks then? You know, if someone comes to you and they says, they think of, or you told someone that they've got plantar fasciitis, how, what does it usually look like with them? Is it is it pain with walking? Is it pain at rest? You know, what, what are the, the key symptoms that people generally tend to have? Uh, the key symptoms are pain uh, upon the first uh, step in the morning. So when getting out of bed, putting your feet down to the floor, very uh, acute or excruciating pain, as some people describe it. It feels like a red hot poker going through the bottom of the heel. Uh, that's a really common description. Uh, typically, that pain will then start to ease after five to ten minutes uh, as you know, as you get warmed up and get going. And then generally patients will be fine for the early morning, midday. Towards the end of the day, if they've been on their feet a lot, they'll notice the pain will start to come back and feel progressively worse again. And if they then rest in the evening, maybe sit on the sofa for an hour and then go to stand up, um, again, it's very, very painful. They get that similar response to the, the pain on first step in the morning. That's your classical symptom pattern. Okay, so they wake up and they, it's like you've stepped on a Lego brick or stepped on a pin. A lot of people described it as a sudden stab in the of 
Hain right around the, the heel. And are we talking about the kind of the middle of the arch, the ball of the heel, you know, in specifically, or does it vary kind of from patient to patient? I, I would say it varies, but it most commonly affects the, the bottom of the heel. Um, so not, we're not talking around the back of the heel where the Achilles tendon is. We're talking right on the, the very bottom of the heel. It can sometimes progress a little bit further into the arch of the foot. And that's because the plantar fascia, it anchors onto the heel, but it does run along the whole sole of the foot. So for some people, they, they will get pain a little bit further down into the arch of the foot. I don't see people that have plantar fasciitis as far down as towards the, the ball of the foot, what we call the metatarsal uh, heads. Uh, however, I do see a lot of patients that think they've got plantar fasciitis um, when they have pain in this region, but in most cases, it's a different condition. It's a different, yeah. And I know there are lots of other conditions which are very similar, and I know we're going to come on to those in a minute. So when someone comes to you and they say, I've got, you know, I've got pain in my heel and I've got soreness when I get out of bed in the morning, are there tests which you do um, then that help confirm that or diagnose it? You know, what, what's your go-to? Uh, yeah, the, the simple thing is a term we call palpation, and that's just a fancy word for pressing on the sore area. So all I do is um, use my thumbs, push onto the attachment site of the plantar fascia um, as it anchors onto the heel bone, and it's quite a wide structure the plantar fascia. So you might find, or what I find is that it's one part of the heel bone is not painful, but another part is. And that just gives me an idea as to uh, which part of the plantar fascia is injured because technically there are three different portions of the plantar fascia, but I won't go into too much detail about that. Um, what we're also, what I'm also doing in that examination is palpating other structures. So I'll be pushing on other tissue to see whether that provokes a response and that helps me rule out other causes of, of heel pain. Uh, and obviously that's got an important thing to make sure that it is it is plantar fasciitis. Are there other tests in terms of imaging scans that, you know, that we need in order to diagnose or confirm plantar fasciitis or, or is palpation and, and the history and ruling out anything else enough to kind of give you to, enough to work on? Yeah, I think um, taking a really detailed history is absolutely key. So I, I tend to spend about 20 to 25 minutes uh, of history taking, talking about the symptom pattern um, before I even examine my patients. And what that allows me to do is to rule out a very long list of other possible conditions. So by the time we then get onto the examination and, and we're you know, palpating and feeling for where that pain is, that then allows us to home in a little bit more detailed on what the possibilities are and rule out some further conditions. And I don't think imaging is essential to confirm plantar fasciitis. I think if somebody's got the classical symptom pattern and the history taking has been very good and the examination has been very thorough, um, you could accurately diagnose plantar fasciitis without imaging. If you do have imaging to hand, then that's fantastic. And that's personally what my preferred approach is in the clinic is to use a, a, an on-site diagnostic ultrasound machine so we can confirm um, you know, whether it is plantar fasciitis and rule out other conditions. But I wouldn't say it's essential. Okay. So what are you looking for on that ultrasound? So for people that aren't familiar with diagnostic ultrasound, they might be aware of, you know, when you have a baby, that's the one that most typically, typical, typically people are most aware of when it comes to diagnostic ultrasound. What are you looking for? Are you looking for, you know, the inflammatory response? You know, what's your, what are you, what are you looking for? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so we're looking at the anatomy of the plantar fascia to see whether it looks uh, normal. So there are a couple of features which would be normal uh, for the plantar fascia on an ultrasound scan. Uh, one of them is is the measurement of the thickness of the plantar fascia. So uh, what we know from studies is that the plantar fascia thickness should be no greater than four millimeters. Uh, so that's a criteria that we use to determine whether there is thickening of the plantar fascia. 
Uh, but we're also looking at the quality of the collagen, uh, which is the, the fibers which make the plantar fascia. So on a scan, a healthy plantar fascia should look nice and sort of white or gray and shiny, sort of very well defined. Uh, what we see in plantar fasciitis is thickening of the plantar fascia. So we typically it's it's greater than four millimeters in thickness and could be as much as nine millimeters in thickness. So it can over double the size of its normal anatomy when it's particularly bad. And we're we're looking for um, things like tears as well, which can go hand in hand with plantar fasciitis, depending on how severe it is. And that shows up on the scan as like a, a dark or black area. And the grey, shiny appearance, which we like to see with normal fascia, we start to lose that and the whole image just looks generally a lot darker. Okay. Now, to put you on the spot, I assume people can also have these changes without having any symptoms. Is that right? As with many other conditions, we know that ultrasound and MRIs, people have changes. So these symptoms, these these visualizations themselves don't necessarily mean that you have plantar fasciitis, but they just help back up that kind of diagnosis i guess of and your other other findings yeah that's a really good point so um, there's a very common saying which most professionals are familiar with which is treat the patient don't treat the scan uh, and what i do as a matter of routine with all of my patients that i scan is that i then scan the other foot um, regardless to whether they're having any pain in that foot or not and sometimes they'll have no pain whatsoever but when i measure the plantar fascia it might be greater than four millimeters uh, so we have to just bear in mind that these reference points are just that, they're reference values to give us a, a rough idea, but we have to appreciate everyone's anatomy is unique and is going to present slightly differently. Good. As, as with many other body parts, I know we've, we've touched on, on many of our shows before about, you know, treating that person on the scan. So I'm really glad you, 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 you were on exactly the same page we are when it, when, it, when it comes to that as well. Now, let's get back to that patient. She's come in and or he has come in and you've got this pain and you think, yes, this is you know, likely in your head. This is plantar fasciitis, which I'm sure you can probably tell fairly early on. What else are you thinking of? So what are some other conditions which might have pain in around the base of the foot or around there that might look a bit or feel a bit like plantar fasciitis, but is actually something different? Okay, yeah. So if we start with plantar fascia itself, um, plantar fasciitis is um, sort of thickening uh, of the plantar fascia, which is very painful, but there isn't any uh, distinct tear. Um, so a plantar fascia tear is technically a different condition, and typically it's more painful and more disabling. Um, so that's something I like to uh, make sure uh, we, we can rule out, or if it is if that is the correct diagnosis, then the treatment plan will change accordingly. A plantar fascia rupture is going even one step further. So a tear is like a partial split in the fascia, but it's some of it is still intact. A rupture is where it's completely snapped. Uh, and again, that will be even more painful than a tear and even more debilitating, uh, but more common than, than most people might think. Uh, beyond the plantar fascia itself, we've got some other anatomy on the bottom of the heel. In fact, it's an incredibly complex, um, uh, you know, bit of architecture of the foot. So the, the anatomy is really, really complex. Um, we've got something called the plantar fat pad, and this is a, a, a fat, bit of fatty tissue um, which is located between the plantar fascia and the skin. So if you start from the top layer, you've got the skin, and then immediately below the skin, you've got your uh, your fat pad, and then deep to the fat pad, you've got your plantar fascia, and deep to the plantar fascia, you've got the heel bone itself. And sometimes the heel fat pad can become injured and that might present as swelling of the fat pad. Or sometimes uh, people's fat pad can thin as they get older and that's what we call fat pad atrophy and that itself can be symptomatic. Um, we've also got nerves which run around the, the inside of the heel and there's a common nerve entrapment called Baxter's nerve entrapment. Baxter was just the, um, 
think it was an orthopedic surgeon who um, you know recognized the significance of this uh, way back in the day hence the name Baxter's <coughs> nerve entrapment uh, and that's something which is quite common and can happen alongside plantar fasciitis but also can just be an isolated condition in itself oh so so some vital differentials i guess to to rule out to make sure that you are treating the right thing because i guess they'll all have different pre- treatment protocols so what one way you treat plantar fasciitis i know we're going to come on to that in a moment would be very different to how you treat you know fat pad inflammation compared to you know Baxter's nerve entrapment i assume <laughs> that yes, it'll be different correct yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> not being a podiatrist myself you know i thought <laughs> just just don't double check that okay so now i guess the key part that people listening and if they're suffering from plantar fasciitis it it can be so debilitating you know and it can be something which is really you know life-altering when it's really really severe is the treatment and so we're kind of now going to get into the nitty-gritty of what works what doesn't work and what is the best thing that people can do to help with it so you know go back to that patient yet again what is your initial treatment so that first day they come in it's it's fairly acute it hasn't been that long since they've had it you know what what's the go-to are we jumping straight to surgery here or are we starting with a few more conservative options yeah we certainly aren't jumping to surgery in fact i in my 11 years as a podiatrist i've i've only seen a very small number of people that have had no sorry i've only seen a small number of people that have actually had surgery for plantar fasciitis uh, so my, my initial go-tos really are to try and get the symptoms down and help patients with their pain management. By the time they come and see me, um, usually the pain is quite significant and that's what's motivated them to come in in the first place. So patients typically come in with quite high pain levels. Uh, what One thing I find quite useful that I can do there and there, there and then in the room with my patient is tape the foot. Uh, taping the foot helps offload the plantar fascia. So uh, the tape provides additional support. Um, as the plantar fascia's job, as I said, is to support the arch of the foot. If you use uh, another way to support the arch of the foot, i.e. tape, then you're helping the plantar fascia do its job and that decreases the stress on it. Uh, patient education is absolutely key as well. So it's making the patient aware of anything that they are doing unknowingly, which is making it worse. And I would say probably the most common error is not resting enough. Uh, so uh, patients will tend to, uh, if they've increased their activity levels, and they're suffering with pain, they don't necessarily always reduce their activity levels. They they hope that they can just maintain that, that level of activity and that the pain will start to get better. Um, unfortunately, that's often not the case. So rest is really, really important. And footwear is another area where patients uh, can quite easily um, you know, be led astray and, and wear the wrong types of footwear, which can make it worse. So I think there's quite a few things that I can do there and there in, in the room with the patient, uh, be it education or hands-on treatment, that can make quite an impactful difference in a matter of days. Brilliant. And something which you read about a lot when you look in Facebook groups and forums about plantar fasciitis, people talk about this buildup of scar tissue, and it's something which has kind of been perpetuated around massage and you know, treatments like that for all sorts of different conditions. And people talk about the need to kind of break down scar tissue and, you know, that whatever whether that's a tool whether it's needling whether it's you know hands-on is there anything that you can do with your hands in order to you know we know we can't you can't actually break down scar tissue i don't know whether you want to touch on that or not but is there anything which you can do you know physically in terms of manual therapy wise to to help manage it uh, yeah, there are manual therapy techniques which can be lo- uh, can be focused on the plantar fascia itself. Um, so this can involve you know, hands-on massaging or applying pressure to the plantar fascia and along the course of the plantar fascia, so starting at the heel, working your way along the fascia, down the sole of the foot towards the toes. 
uh, and this is why a, a common uh, treatment option patients will probably find uh, read about or see on Google is to use a, a, like some form of ball or massage device to roll along the sole of the foot. Now, this doesn't necessarily fix the problem, but it does provide a therapeutic benefits. It seems to ease the symptoms. So uh, that's something patients can do themselves, what we call self-massage, or it's something a clinician can do there and then in the room. Um, you can also focus on other tissues, which might be contributing to the problem. So looking a little bit higher up the, the foot, uh, higher up the leg, I should say. Um, so here we're looking at the calf muscles, particularly, as there's a, a very common link between increased muscular tension of the calf muscle and plantar fasciitis. So you can use hands-on techniques to help, uh, you know, relax the calf muscles, um, which should then help with uh, decreasing stress on the plantar fascia. Okay, so these are, are, sim- are you know, short-term symptomatic type procedures, which allow you know reduction in pain but then if you're still increasing your load and you're not resting then it's not something that's ever going to cure it as such in that kind of one session of soft tissue work or anything like that would that be correct in saying yeah i think that's spot on really and um Although that seems obvious to you and I as clinicians, uh, you know, patients don't necessarily, um, you know, have, they need to be told this. They need to be given, they need to be armed with the correct education so they they can set their expectations accordingly. Well, that's our job. You know, it's not their job to to know. Yeah. And then... um, well, I'll just confirm that taping was called, it's called load, is that lodi taping? Is that right? Is yeah, that the there's lots, phrase? yeah, there's lots of different techniques for taping. Uh, lodi is probably the most established one, and that's the one I personally use uh, in the clinic. Okay. And then what about stretching? Um, you know, there are, you know, you mentioned a little bit about the kind of the shortness of the calves, and, you know, stretching might have a temporary benefit of improving those. What about actually stretching the plantar fascia? Obviously, fascia is pretty strong. You know, can, can we stretch it? Is that just another symptomatic relief? You know, what's the benefits here? Yeah, so um, stretching is something I'm a strong advocate of, particularly stretching the calf muscles because of the the uh, cause and effect relationship between tight calf muscles and increased stress on the plantar fascia. So if we target the calf muscles and, and increase the flexibility of them, we actually decrease the strain on the plantar fascia. That does take a bit of time, though, so it's not going to happen overnight, and it takes a lot of patience. Um, you know, patients have to have a lot of patience to see the results. It's more of a slow burner. Um, there's done, there's plenty of research looking at stretching the plantar fascia directly. So uh, as you, as you uh, mentioned there, Rob, it's uh, fascia is a really tough piece of tissue. It's not actually very elastic at all. So there is a big question: Can we actually stretch it, and what we what we're trying to achieve? Uh, and the true answer at the moment is we don't really know. Uh, what we know from the research is that stretching the plantar fascia. Um, seems to provide benefit so it helps with pain both in the short term and in the long term but we don't necessarily know why okay so well, i mean i guess the, the debate is that you know we, yes we can't stretch in it stretch it to lengthen it but we can still load it and you know stretching is arguably just a, a low load you know in the way that when you walk on it you're not actually increasing the length of it hugely but you're you're putting some some stress on it on you so stretching yeah. just a lower form of stress to help relieve some symptoms i guess that's kind of the way i look at it in yeah. just a in, ch- in changing the load slightly, but just in a small way to help help manage some pain. And then, um, so talking about stretching, talking about the the kind of the ball massaging. The other thing which you hear a lot about is rolling your ball on a frozen water bottle. So mm. that kind of ice frozen water bottle, pop your foot on it and roll around it in the evenings. We know that it's not you know red and hot and inflamed with that itis. Is there still some benefit to using some ice and rolling it around on the bottom of the foot? Um, I find patients, uh, some patients that do benefit from it. And the, and I think if you do benefit from let's start that again. Yeah. yeah. I think uh, some patients do benefit from using ice. 
Whether that's because the ice is reducing swelling or not is is is, is another question. Um, what we do know about ice is that it can be quite an effective analgesic, which means a pain pain reliever, really. So perhaps it numbs the area and therefore helps with pain. Some patients will find that it works. And if it works for patients, I think that's great. And I don't discourage them from doing it. Other patients who have tried it and have found that it doesn't provide benefit, then usually I'll say to them, well, if it's not working for you, don't use it. So it's certainly not a rule you must ice. And it's, it's certainly not a rule to say you shouldn't ice either. I think it's very much patient response uh, dependent. Perfect. Good. So if it's making things worse, stop, basically. And if, if it's yeah. not helping, then there's, there's no benefit to, to carry on going. Yeah. And then you roughly, you, bri- uh, you briefly mentioned shoes. Um, you know, are there better shoes, worse shoes, you know, things which we will always make them worse in everyone? Or is it, again, very, very patient dependent? It's relatively patient dependent, but I think that we can um, we can generalize here on what types of shoes will make it worse. Uh, typically, those are shoes which have a very low heel or what we call a flat shoe. So uh, just to give uh, patients a visualization, most people are familiar with plimsolls or, or converse trainers. Um, they're very, very low in the heel and very flat along the sole. And also very flimsy. So if you pick up the shoe, you can sort of you can screw it up or wring it like a towel as well, which means it doesn't really have much structural stability. And a lot of sufferers with, that have plantar fasciitis, firstly, is that they often have tight calf muscles, which means their 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 feet and legs aren't flexible enough to allow them to wear that sort of shoe, uh, and that's what adds the strain on the plantar fascia. And additionally, the foot needs a little bit of extra support to give the, uh, the plantar fascia a helping hand. So if we've got a shoe which is very flat and very flexible that will usually just won't help plantar fasciitis. Uh, so so like a, a, a trainer, effectively, or a sneaker for American listeners, whatever they call mm-hmm. them over there, tennis shoes, I've heard all sorts of things. So that basically a, a thicker, more supportive shoe in that kind of interim while people have pain is a is a good way to go around to, to help manage it. Yeah. And then it, would you advocate wearing shoes or those type of shoes all the time? Uh, you know, when someone's in pain, should they keep them on in the house, wear them around the house, or, or is going barefoot for short periods okay? Yeah, I think going barefoot for short periods is fine for most people, um, unless they are particularly symptomatic, uh, which means that their symptoms are really easy to stir up. So for those in those occasions, we, I think it's better to be a little bit more protective and wear shoes indoors. Uh, what patients can also do is, is strap the foot up as well. So uh, as I mentioned with the low dye strapping technique, that's something I do in the patient uh, in the clinic for the patients, but I'll teach my patients how to do it. So if they don't want to wear shoes at home, and I appreciate you know a lot of people don't want to do it sometimes for hygiene reasons or just have a little bit of freedom and you know not having anything on your feet, uh, then a suitable alternative is to use strapping, which is going to give you some aspect of support. Oh, that's really interesting to know. I'll have to make note of that one. Thank you. And then what about things like a boot and crutches, you know, kind of offloading that completely? You know, does that, you know, is that counterintuitive or is it really beneficial when these when it's really, really severe? Um, when plantar fasciitis is really, really severe, often there is something more going on than just plantar fasciitis. So that could be entrapment of Baxter's nerve. So um, this is a nerve which runs just under the plantar fascia and it weaves in, in, in between a couple of muscles. When the plantar fascia becomes uh, excessively thickened, that compresses on the muscles, which then compress on the nerve. And that produces very high pain levels. It's like a typically like a really hot burning sort of pain. Uh, so... It's for these sorts of patients, offloading into a boot or using crutches can certainly help bring down symptoms. Uh, there are other other conditions as well, which go hand in hand with plantar fasciitis. So you can get injury to the heel bone itself. And, and typically what we uh, what we see on a scan is bone marrow edema, which is a fancy way of saying bruising or swelling on the bone. 
Uh, and these patients are really symptomatic. So sometimes when you've got more than plantar fasciitis going on, using a boot is, is the best thing and it's very appropriate. For your typical plantar fasciitis patient, I would say using a boot isn't required and can be con- counterintuitive because um, if we completely rest the foot and we decrease load significantly, we're then faced with the challenge of getting out of the boot and then having to recondition the foot. Uh, so it, it, we end up taking quite a few steps backwards, uh, excuse the pun. So it's yeah, it's sometimes best avoided if we can. So, so it's saved for the rarest of the of, of the cases, really. Yeah. Just to jump back slightly, we, we spoke about this Baxter's nerve. For you as a clinician, how how do you differentiate whether it's one, both, or one or the other, kind of between Baxter's nerve and plantar fasciitis? Yeah, it can be really tricky to differentiate between the two, um, just from taking history alone and and asking about symptom pattern because the two conditions do mimic each other. Um, clinical examinations can help further with that so um where when we're examining the foot and we're palpating which means we're we're pressing on various structures um you can press on an area of the foot where the plantar fascia isn't uh, but the baxter's nerve is and and if you're getting a pain response there then it can give you a clue that you might not be dealing with plantar fascia perhaps something else um the diagnostic ultrasound scan is really helpful because that can tell us whether we have plantar fasciitis or not. And we can see that with the abnormal features on the scan. So when plantar fasciitis looks normal from a scan, but they've got symptoms which are suggestive of plantar fasciitis or Baxter's nerve entrapment, um, if the plantar fascia looks fine, then effectively we can say we'll rule out that and it's more likely to be Baxter's. So we can't necessarily always be 100% certain. Uh, and sometimes we do have to take what I would call you know, an educated guess or a professional opinion. Uh, there is additional testing you can do. Uh, one thing I quite like is doing a, a local anaesthetic um, diagnostic injection. So we can inject a part of the heel sort of on, up the inside of the ankle where we know Baxter's nerve runs. Uh, so this is actually quite far away from the plantar fascia. So what I typically do is inject about one milliliter of local anaesthetic. That will numb the nerve. And if the pain goes away, and you'll usually get a, a uh, a pain uh, improvement response within about 10 minutes after that anesthetics kicked in, um, then you can be even more confident that it's irritation of the nerve as opposed to the plantar fascia. Fascinating. That sounds really interesting. Your job sounds brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> and then the, the big one, um, strengthening. You know, the strengthening is when you look at the research, people try to talk about this as the most important thing as well as load management and various other things. Are there st- strengthening type exercises which we can do which you know really help it? You know, what, what, what's the evidence say on that? Uh, well, the evidence um, is is modest, I would say, in support of doing strengthening exercises uh, for plant fasciitis. So strengthening has become very big in in the what we call the musculoskeletal world. So problems to do with you know uh, muscles and tendon strains, etc. And and rehab is incredibly popular, and rightfully so because there's there's a lot of good results and convincing evidence that's the right thing. Uh, Plantar fasciitis uh, is slightly different because it's not a tendon and it's not a muscle and it's not a ligament. Uh, we do have to acknowledge that and, and treat it slightly differently. Uh, so whilst I think strengthening can be helpful, um, it's not as important, I don't think, as stretching exercises are. Uh, but it can be an, a useful adjunct. Uh, so I do typically get my patients to do strengthening exercises uh, for plantar fasciitis. I think it has an assistive role to play, but it's certainly not the be all and end all. 
Good, good to know. And then are there specific strength exercises which you normally give people? Are these, yeah, people talk about heel raises and toe curls and different ones. Are, are, do you have a, a go-to as, as your favorites? Yeah, I like to keep exercises very, very simple for patients. And the r- main reason is that if the exercises is simple to do, it's more likely to be done consistently. And I think consistency is the absolute key here. Uh, So calf raises are my go-to exercises because they are what we call a functional exercise. So it means it replicates our normal movement patterns. So when we walk or when we run, um, we will push through the ball of the foot, which will lift the heel off the ground. And if we're replicating that movement by doing a calf raising exercise, then we're doing a movement which is something we do normally. Um, There are other exercises which some people do recommend, such as toe curling exercises, which is where you scrunch your toes and you can put a towel on the floor and sort of scrunch up the towel progressively and sort of work the towel towards you and then roll it back out and then scrunch your toes up again. That sort of exercise I'm not actually a fan of because that's what we call non-functional. You know, all we're doing is clawing with the toes there. We certainly are working the small muscles in the feet, um, but it's, it's not... It doesn't make sense as to how and why that would help uh, decrease stress on the plantar fascia. Good to know. I'm trying to think about how many patients I've you know seen doing claw toe yeah. clawing exercises, which they've seen on an Instagram post or various things like that. Probably, probably too many. Good. So that's so that's the exercises. And then what about orthotics, orthoses? You know, they've got a few different names. You know, some people think they're the be all and end all. Some people think otherwise. You know, where do you stand on the, on the orthotic debate? So for plantar fasciitis specifically, I'm a big fan of orthotics. Um, just so patient listeners um, know the difference, orthoses is is the technically correct term for orthotics, but um, myself and most professionals stick to using the word orthotics and what we're referring to are insoles that, you, that we wear in our shoes. Uh, so I like orthotics and generally speaking, they come in two different types. You get a custom made one, which is where somebody's taken a scan or an imprint of your foot to make an orthotic, which is designed on your specific individual foot characteristics and your individual needs. And you get something called a prefab orthotic, which means that it's ready made, fresh out of the box. Uh, so you can tend to find this in, you know, in uh, either on the Internet, on Amazon, for example, or in, in your high streets, uh, such as places like uh, Boots or other pharmacies. Other pharmacies may also be available. Indeed, <laughs> indeed. <laughs> um, I, I lean towards custom-made orthotics because I think we, I, I achieve more accurate results. Um, I should say consistent results is, is the word I'm looking for. And that's because... The orthotic design incorporates the patient's individual characteristics. And another uh, reason I like custom-made orthotics is that most patients have already tried a prefabricated orthotic before they even come to see me. And often it's been partially beneficial, but clearly not enough. And that's why they've, they've come to book an appointment with me. And often it, it's just the the prefab orthotic is sort of achieving what we need to achieve, but just not doing a good enough job. Uh, and that's where a custom-made orthotic can make a significant difference. Okay, and then, so the benefit of these orthotics is like an extreme version of the tape, effectively. It basically does some of the job of the plantar fascia for it, so it's not being quite as overloaded when you're walking, running, whatever it might be to, to, to you know, really pee it off, I guess. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, if we want to deliberately put more stress on the plantar fascia we can do that by pronating the foot which means that the foot rolls in or the arch becomes flatter or longer therefore if we try and do the complete opposite when we're treating the plantar fascia uh, plantar fasciitis um, we can do that a number of ways so taping decreases foot pronation wearing supportive 
good shoes also decreases pronation. If we add an orthotic into the mix, that's just another method of decreasing foot pronation. And if we focus on that, we are effectively decreasing the strain and load on the plantar fascia, which pretty much always helps with symptoms. And then, but then once this patient, let's go back, Mrs. Smith again, once this patient has, you know, we're six months down the line and she's significantly better, even longer, two years down the line and she's significantly better, she doesn't have any pain, hasn't had a pain for a year or so. Can you then remove the orthotics because she still, you know, has effectively that that pronation if you take the the feet away? Can she take them out or is this a lifelong change, I guess? Yeah, that's a really good question and I think it's really important to point out that most people who have plantar fasciitis and have a pronated foot type often have ha- have had a pronated foot type for for most of their life, sometimes all of their life. And having a pronated foot is not a problem. It's not a condition and it's not an abnormality that needs to be fixed. What we do know is that increased pronation puts more strain on the plantar fascia. So there is a, there can be a moment in time when we develop the uh, condition plantar fasciitis. And that can be a combination of you've got a pronated foot and you've put on weight and you've also gone out and done more activity than you're, than you're used to. So we've got a recipe for, for an injury there. Uh, but once you've um, once patients have recovered from plantar fasciitis, let's say a year down the line, and they've been prescribed orthotics, um, there's nothing to say they can't uh, wean themselves off of those orthotics, and they certainly uh, won't be dependent on them. And, and in fact, that's what I advise most patients to do: is that after they've had their orthotics for a year or so, depending on where they're at with their level of improvement, is if they want to stop wearing orthotics, then I'm all for that. I just get them to do it very gradually, so we're not taking uh, making too much of a rapid change over a short period of time. And for a lot of patients, the pain or, you know, the problem doesn't come back. I think the minority of cases, uh, some people are a little bit more reliant on um, on their orthotics. And if they do start to stop wearing them a year or two after having plantar fasciitis, it, the problem can start to creep back. And my understanding of that is that that's the body's way of saying that it does need an extra extra hand. So as like with all injuries, you know, there are so many, you know, factors that play into this injury and that just being one of them. Pronation is not the big, bad, ugly bugbear in the room. That's just one factor plus the other things that you said that leads to wrong place, wrong time, too much, too soon, too many. It just overloaded it. And then we end up with, with, with an out, <laughs> with, with pain, I guess. Yeah, great. Yeah. So those are kind of, you know, those initial things which you often do for, I imagine, kind of the vast majority of your patients. Now, there are lots of, you know, I say lots, there are lots of other things for the, you know, the smaller number of patients who might not get any better. And, you know, those are things like injections and people might have heard of shockwave therapy and, you know, eventually surgical options, which I know you said are very, very rare. Can we run through some of those? I mean, maybe starting with shockwave about kind of, I don't know if you use shockwave personally or what it does, what it doesn't do. And, and is, does it help? Mm. Yeah, so shockwave therapy is something that has gained a lot of popularity um, for a wide number of musculoskeletal conditions, so whether it's Achilles tendonitis, tennis elbow, um, or other uh, tendinopathies or abuse injuries. It's also very popular for plantar fasciitis, and, and rightly so. So it's something that's been uh, researched quite extensively for a, a few decades now. And on balance, what the research shows us is that it's, it's a, it is a very effective treatment for typical cases of plantar fasciitis. Uh, and what it does, um, a shockwave is is a very high energy sound wave. So if we use ultrasound uh, as a comparison, if you put an ultrasound probe on, on a body area, the patient won't necessarily feel very much. Sometimes they can feel a little bit of heat, but that's about it. A shockwave is like a, an ultrasound wave that's sped up 
uh, and is more powerful. So it does create a, mechan- a mechanical stimulus, which a patient can certainly feel. And indeed, I would say receiving shockwave therapy as a treatment is a little bit painful. Uh, but every treatment I've ever, uh, every patient I've ever treated can tolerate it. And I've been using it for about seven or eight years now and, and get very uh, you know, good results with it. In terms of what it's achieving is it's breaking, well, it's, there's, in truth, we, nobody really knows exactly the mechanism of how it works, but there are quite a few popular theories um, on a cellular level. So I won't go into too much detail uh, about this so we don't get too technical and boring. But basically, it's meant to break up the thickness of the plantar fascia, which is part of the disease process. It's also pro-inflammatory, which means that it stimulates the inflammatory response, which is the body's natural healing cascade. So it's almost opposite to what you would be trying to achieve with a code called costeroid injection, which is an anti-inflammatory. So it's a very different way of thinking. So the idea being that it stimulates this this inflammatory cascade, this inflammatory cycle, and then it, the, effectively the body then heals itself, you know, which is why it can take quite a long time, I think, as well, because it's kickstarting this mechanism into, into action, I guess, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's sort of the theory behind it. And I think in practice, my experience, uh, you know, is you know, is consistent with that, is that we do see that when patients get better after receiving shockwave therapy, it's not... Uh, it's not a quick fix. It's something that happens over time. And the longer I review my patients without necessarily adding in any further treatment, um, we find I find that patients progressively get better. And the one thing with which I know that people are quite worried about with shockwave therapy is the pain. And, you know, I guess you're the person to ask, should it hurt? You know, is it more effective the more painful it is? You know, because obviously that's going to put a lot of people off if it's very painful. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't know about it being more effective based on more pain that you inflict on patients. Um, I'd, I'd imagine. Not, I'd hope not. But yeah. I thought it was. Uh, yeah. I thought it was terrifying. Yeah, no, I'm not. I'm not aware of that being a thing, and the research doesn't suggest that either. Um, in terms of pain levels, I'd, it's it's mildly painful. I think is a typical experience. It's certainly far less painful than receiving an injection. And uh, what's useful is that the shockwave machine has settings on it. So um, if a patient is suffering at a certain level setting, you can decrease that setting, which still allows the treatment to be effective, but allow the patient to get through the treatment. So it should be tolerable. If someone's crying in pain, then there's no benefit to, to doing that. That's not a good thing to, to, to have to put up with, I guess. Yeah, yeah, quite right. Good, yeah. good to know. And then you just mentioned injections. Um, you know, are there lots of different types of injections? You know, what are we injecting when we come to injecting stuff for plantar fasciitis yes there are there's so there's lots of different solutions you can use to inject into patients uh, by far the most common injection is uh, a corticosteroid injection and that's a, a very potent anti-inflammatory so what we're what we're doing is delivering an anti-inflammatory drug to the site of injury so this is injected uh, via various methods. Uh, some people prefer to go straight through the bottom of the hill, uh, and some people prefer to go in at the side of the hill. All of us have our uh, you know, clinicians that do injections have our different preferences and techniques. Um, so a steroid injection, in most cases, will provide symptom relief in the short term. But uh, once the effects of the steroid wears off, often patients' pain levels start to increase. And for a lot of people, unfortunately, they end up going back to square one. So it's it's like a lot of these treatments. It's if you don't address that load or that whatever it is, the factors that are causing it, it's just a painkiller at the end of the day. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, 
So it's a very powerful painkiller. It's it's masking the symptoms, but it's not addressing the cause. So if it's used as a as a standalone treatment, I think you can prepare for for failure. I think it's unlikely to work. Uh, I think where it's you know where, when it's better used, it's when it's adjunctive. So if a patient has very high pain levels and the plantar fascia is particularly inflamed. Injecting it with steroid, um, you know, there is there is an argument that that's that's a beneficial thing, providing you are addressing other contributing factors as to why they've developed it in the first place. So it has a place, but it's um, it should just shouldn't be low, used as a standalone treatment. Good, good to know. And then lastly, you know, you spoke about surgical options, and that they are quite rare. You know, you said you know seen a few that you kind of referred on or seen surgery. Is this is it called the topaz procedure? Am I am I making that up? Have I just completely that is a procedure yeah yeah for plantar fasciitis or it's, for something yeah. different yeah. <laughs> yeah just to clarify that is a procedure it yeah. is, yes. no, mostly used during childbirth actually yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's for plantar fasciitis but it's not a traditional surgical procedure um it's considered a minor procedure but um it's not your your, your typical open surgery releasing the plantar fascia it's it uses a different technology called radio frequency uh so it's it's a, a fancy little thing in itself so i i put that as a a technically it's a different thing to surgery or okay. traditional surgery as we understand it well let's stick to the surgery then um and then you, you mentioned that plantar fascia release what do they do do they just cut it in half you know what's the what, what happens in this procedure yeah so some surgeons do cut the plantar fascia in half and some will completely cut it all the way along to completely release the plantar fascia uh, the consensus i would say amongst amongst most surgeons is to release one third of the plantar fascia uh, so what they tend to do is release from the inner side and, and until they've gone a third of the way along of the width of the plantar fascia. And what the aim of plantar fascia release surgery is, is to decrease the load or the tension that's being applied to the plantar fascia. Uh, the reason why a lot of surgeons are keen on um, leaving the plantar fascia intact, so the other two thirds or half, depending on the surgeon's preference, is that the plantar fascia is incredibly important for the foot function and foot structure. So releasing that completely relieves it of its many important jobs. And that can lead to a cascade of uh, secondary problems. So patients can develop a progressive flattening of the arch of the foot uh, and, and can also develop tendonitis, which is where other tendons within the foot start to become overworked because they're having to do some of the extra work the plantar fascia is no longer doing. And it can cause pain in various joints as well. So you can get um, arthritic type pain and compression in joints where the foot has collapsed as a result of the surgical release. Uh, so it's not a it's not an easy thing to have to to have to go through. Then I guess it's quite a it's quite a big thing to have done this this procedure. It definitely is, yeah. And that's why it's not that commonly done. Really, it's 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 for most people that have plantar fasciitis, they can be treated successfully without going on to have surgery. Um, and even if they have tried everything and things aren't getting better, surgery still might not be a good option due to a whole number of reasons, due to their lifestyle choice, uh, you know, their, their treatment preferences and comorbidities. So if they've got other conditions going on, such as diabetes or, you know, heart condition, um, you know, the risk of surgery might be too great. So um, surgery is certainly something not to be taken lightly. And again, we're talking about a very small percentage of people then that go down, you know, if you see this all, all the time and you've seen, you said you had a handful of people that have gone down this, the line of having procedures and surgery. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, plantar fasciitis is something I treat every day and you know i've been a podiatrist for 11 years so i imagine i've seen thousands of plant fasciitis patients um 
my best guess is I probably haven't seen as many as 50 surgical cases. So probably probably less than 30 if I think about it. Yeah. Okay, so it's, it's, that should be good then for everyone listening. That should be a confidence booster that, you know, they're, they're struggling. They might have had it for a very long time. It's still, you know, you've seen thousands and thousands of cases of this and it's, a, you know, a, even rare by, by your book as well. So that should be should be good to hear. So we've talked about all the things that, that do work. Are there anything which doesn't work and that we know that we can not necessarily aggravate it or makes it worse, but you, you can touch on that too, but other things which we shouldn't be doing for plantar fasciitis? Um, yeah, in my opinion, I think there are a couple of uh, treatments which have been around for a long time within um, you know, the world of uh, podiatry, physiotherapy, osteopathy, and you know, the chiropractic communities as well. So all of us clinicians uh, treat musculoskeletal conditions. And over the years, uh, you know, treatments have evolved and changed. And what so there are some modalities of treatment which might work for some musculoskeletal problems, but then they can be very ineffective for other specific types. So with plant fasciitis uh, specifically, I don't find therapeutic ultrasound to be very helpful. So this is an ultrasound machine that a clinician might apply to a patient in the treatment room. Um, the research tells us consistently that it it's, it's doesn't work it's, or it's no better than placebo. So um, it's something which I'm not a fan of and something I don't provide for my patients. Um, there are other things that patients can acquire themselves. So that's not necessarily coming in to see a professional, but something you can buy on the internet. And what I have seen in uh, the most recent a year or two are these gimmicky little devices which are uh, they're described as shockwave therapy devices and it's like a uh, like a little um uh, piece of plastic that you strap to the underside of your foot and the way it's sold to to potential customers is that it delivers shockwaves but it it doesn't at all um you know, true shockwave therapy is a completely different, uh, you know, science in terms of how the how the shockwaves are produced. So there are gimmicks and rip off uh, treatments out there, unfortunately. So if in doubt, speak to someone like yourself. If, if whether you're buying the right thing or not, just to save wasting, you're probably far better spending the money on a consultation than a, than a, a fifty quid gimmick down the road to uh, yeah. try and try, try and cure it. So. We're kind of closing up now. You know, that was a fascinating discussion on plantar fasciitis, this you know debilitating condition. Would you have you know three top takeaways for anyone right now who's suffering? You know, if you had to, if they, if you could write three things up on a up up in the sky for them to know or understand or learn about plantar fasciitis, what would it be? Okay, so I think the first one is don't self-diagnose, <laughs> which probably isn't a, a surprise to, for most listeners to hear that. Um, but with you know technology these days and the temptation to use Dr. Google, I find that most patients do self-diagnose. Uh, and what, what I find interesting is that when they do come to see me with their self-diagnosis of plantar fasciitis, it's incredibly common for it not to be plantar fasciitis. The number of times I actually... Uh, you know, tell the patient you don't have plantar fasciitis. What you have is this, and the significance of that is that the treatment is really dependent on the, the specifics of the diagnosis. So, if you're self-treating and self-diagnosing, um, so you might find that you're not getting better because the treatment is not appropriate because you don't have what you think you have. So, don't self-diagnose. Go and see a professional. Perfect. I think that's a a, a very good top tip for anyone to uh, for anyone who's suffering to really take on board. And then, obviously, you're the expert on this. 
where can people go and find you? Where can people go and find out more about you? I know you've got a podcast as well, if people like a bit more in depth. So feel free to, you know, mention anything which you would like to like to plug. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I have a clinic based in Box in Wiltshire, which is about five miles east of Bath in, in Somerset. So we're based in, this, in southwest England. And I'm a podiatrist by background. So a podiatrist is, is a foot and ankle specialist. And over the years of being a podiatrist, I've always had a particular interest in heel pain. And that's why I've developed a heel pain clinic. Uh, so it, the clinic is called the Heel Pain Expert. So if you type that in on Google, you should find uh, you know more information about me and the clinic and the services that we provide. Uh, so because I specialize in this condition, there are a number of treatment options that I do provide at the clinic that you might not necessarily find in your by your local podiatrist or local health provider, whoever you're seeing for plantar fasciitis. Uh, yes, I do have a podcast, uh, which is called the Heel Pain Expert Podcast. This is really aimed at uh, professionals, I'd say. So it's very research-driven. I wouldn't uh, imagine most uh, sufferers or patients would be particularly interested in, in listening to it. It might might be good to put them to sleep at night if <laughs> you know if people struggle with insomnia. You're selling yourself yeah. there. there. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's a podcast really for professionals because it goes into the nitty-gritty, geeky science side of side of the research. Uh, I'm available. Um, you can find me on Twitter. Sorry, um, at at Heel Expert. That's my Twitter handle, and um, uh, Facebook as well. So you, if you put in on Facebook the Heel Pain Expert, you'll come across our, our page. Fantastic, and we will put all the links to that kind of in the show notes beneath. So if you misheard anything or couldn't find it, then just click on the links beneath, and we can uh, we'll you'll be directed right to wherever you've uh, we've described. So thank you so much for joining us today, Ben. You know that's been a a hugely insightful episode to a you know really debilitating condition so thank you for clearing up some myths and thank you for busting some you know telling us some truths and really helping people get the the correct information to uh, actually start getting better so thank you very much for joining us thank you thank you very much it's been a, it's been a pleasure uh, i always enjoy uh, talking about a topic that i'm very very passionate about and it's a real privilege to be able to uh, hopefully uh, be able to help people without even be you know get you know, even seeing them in the clinic so thanks for the opportunity rob no worries and thank you everyone for listening if you've uh, if you've got this far thank you very much and we will catch you on the next episode over and out